We invite you to turn your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. Very grateful to Dusty again and your leaders for having me. I'm honored that my parents would recommend me, but uh, suffice it to say, every preacher's parents are a little biased. So uh, (laughs) you need a little more uh, referrals than that. And uh, I guard my pulpit carefully too and our elders at Antioch. And it's a joy to turn with you to the original church growth manual, the only infallible guide we have for church health. The book of Acts, the only inspired and inerrant textbook on how to plant churches, build churches, grow churches, establish churches, stay faithful churches until the king and head, our our groom, comes to fetch us his bride. The original church planting workbook, you could say, through the pen of Dr. Luke. And it has a message that is authoritative and sufficient and alive for the dear body of Christ in every place, in every time, in every age, does it not? The book of Acts is proof that Jesus kept his promise in John 14, 18, in the upper room, uh, hours before he departed, when he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And the whole book of Acts is proof. He came. He's present. He's still at work, right? Acts 1, verse 1, what Jesus is continuing to do. Acts is really a 28-chapter exposition of that one statement in Acts 1, verse 8, which is the theme and the thesis and the proposition for the whole book. You shall be my witnesses, Christ says, before he ascended, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Jerusalem is the starting place for the book of Acts, 100% Jewish church. By the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, Paul is in Rome in the heart of Gentile paganism. In New York, (laughs) California, maybe Dallas, maybe Johannesburg. Isaiah's prophecy is unfolding before their very eyes, right? The servant of the Lord, Messiah, is bringing light to the nations, right? God's salvation to the very ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse 6, as he's still doing today, 20 centuries later. How does the book of Acts end? Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar. The very final word is the Greek word for unhindered, unstoppable. Without hindrance, Acts is all about the irresistibly powerful advance of the gospel, the very word of the living God, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, through his apostles and through his church. And it's a story still being written, right? As Jesus fulfills that great promise back in Matthew 16, I will build my church. My title this morning, I stole from a pastor friend, I believe, in South Africa. You, some of you know his name, Joel James, and I have the privilege of leading together our Shepherd's Seminary, and he's fairly, becoming fairly well known as an author and a theologian and a trainer of pastors. And uh, I think I originally got this from him many years ago, the best church in the Bible. The best church in the Bible. You can argue with me afterwards, but uh, surely it ranks high on the list. It happens to be where we got our name uh, 11 or 12 years ago when our church began there in Johannesburg and perhaps will help you all the more to pray for us and join with us as we aspire to follow this biblical model. Let me set the stage geographically for a moment. The ancient city of Antioch was at the southern tip of what is now modern day Turkey along the beautiful Orontes River. Antioch ranked as the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time in the first century and had a population of over half a million. It was a center of trade and transportation. It joined the land routes from the east with the trade routes around the Mediterranean. 
a highly strategic spot. It was a cosmopolitan city. Antioch was, has been called a crossroads of cultural influence, a melting pot of Western and Eastern cultures. <laughs> Greek and Roman traditions mingled with Jewish and Arab and, and Palestinian and, 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 and Persian influences. Starting to sound a lot like Dallas-Fort Worth, right? <laughs> a lot like Johannesburg, South Africa. But as is the case with great cities, Past or present, first century Antioch was famous not only for its size and culture, but for its sin and superstition. The city was filled with pagan temples. Just outside the city was the notorious temple of Apollo, surrounded by a pleasure park, an outdoor brothel, where people indulged in depravity and immorality of unspeakable description and of every kind. And yet in the gracious plan of God, Antioch's most lasting legacy would not be one marked by sin, but by salvation. Does Romans 5 not tell us where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Is that not your testimony and mine, Christian? If you're a believer here this morning. And so Antioch would be inscribed forever in the great story of Christianity. It would soon replace Jerusalem as the center of gospel activity, the birthplace of foreign missions, the sending church for Paul and Barnabas, the uh, uh, hub of gospel energy and activity, the, the gateway to the ends of the earth, a, a great commission headquarters like we long to be in our church in Johannesburg, and I know you long to be here. So I want to read the text in Acts 11 from verse 19. By the way, the chapter begins with a retelling of the Peter's rooftop vision and the church of Jerusalem is still very unhappy with Peter hanging out with non-Jews. So just bookmark that in your mind because we're going to come back to that uh, near the end of the sermon. But we're going to read from Acts 11 from verse 19 to the end of the chapter and then I'll pray for us. Follow with me as I read Acts 11 from verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, they, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Our gracious Father, thank you for your living and holy word. Thank you for these precious, powerful songs filled with your word that the musicians and Dusty have led us in. Teach us now by your spirit the kind of church and churches you would have us to be. Renew our confidence that your word is still doing your work 
here and around the world that your spirit is, has been poured out, that King Jesus still sits and uh, reigns and rules at the Father's right hand and the gates of hell cannot thwart or stop your purposes, that Christ will build his church. You will, have not left us as orphans. You, as we just read a moment ago, uh, heard read, you will be with us to the very end of the age. Encourage our hearts, equip us to be, and this dear flock here at North Lake, to be the church you'd have them to be in these dark and distressing and opportune and urgent times in the world and in this troubled nation of the U.S. In our Savior's great name we pray, amen. Best church in the Bible. We're going to look at four steps toward a flourishing church. Four steps toward a flourishing church. In Africa, in parts of Africa, not in Johannesburg so much, we are, uh, um, don't have the avocado tropical trees quite like I wanted to describe. Though, by the way, Johannesburg has the world's largest non-indigenous forest planted by the, in the gold rush 100 years ago and by the settlers and uh, folk that came there. Uh, there's no major river. There's no uh, major body of water anywhere near us, but we have the world's, look it up on Google Maps, the largest uh, non-indigenous forest. And so we're blessed with beautiful swath of trees across the middle of Johannesburg and quite green. But if you go a couple hours away, as we do on mission trips and church plants and, and sister churches we're involved with as often as we can, and uh, maybe take you with us one time, we see the real av avocado and tropical trees of Africa. And you've probably seen, maybe you've been to those places where a avocado tree, as South Africans like to say, an, an avo tree, is just bulging ripe. It's just got guacamole written all over it. <laughs> and it's just begging, you know, pick me, pick me, pick me. That's the kind of flourishing church we must have and that the Holy Spirit can produce and that we pray and long for and labor for in our congregations, do we not? These are the four steps. We're gonna look, first of all, a flourishing church is planted by evangelism. By the way, this is so refreshing. There's a certain church sermon on certain topics related to COVID that I got asked to preach about seven or eight times over the last couple of weeks. My son said this morning, Dad, and this is my son, by the way. I didn't get to introduce our youngest. Zeke, wave your hand, please. Thank you, sitting by. Uh, the Burris family, uh, in the absence of uh, my wife and other kids. But um, he said, Dad, Dad, is it going to be a different sermon? <laughs> He's thrilled, and so am I. Four steps toward a flourishing church. First of all, planted by evangelism, and then we'll look at a flourishing church watered by encouragement, and then we'll see it grows through teaching, and then it blossoms in generosity. Evangelism, encouragement, teaching, and generosity. Let's look first of all at a flourishing church planted by evangelism. Verses 19 to 21. Planted by evangelism. Look there at the real story behind the story, the backstory of the book of Acts. Behind the acts of the apostles are the acts of ordinary Christians, unknown pioneers, no-name preachers, like most of us. <laughs> Look at verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And they were speaking the word. So far, so good. The gospel never would have spread like wildfire as it did if Christianity in the early centuries and early decades had not become a lay movement. If you're just waiting on the seminary grads and the Bible school uh, uh, certificates and the theologians and the, and the seminary professors and the John MacArthur downloads and, and so forth to get the job done, you'll have a plan for shrinking churches. <laughs> they grow through you, <laughs> through all of us. 
professionals alone never got the job done. And that was never God's plan, if you could say in a sense, if there were any professionals to begin with, though there were some pretty capital A official apostles with a critical role. But this was the whole church, believers. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. No fishing, no following. <laughs> if you're not a man catcher, as the old preachers in Spurgeon would say, you might not be a Jesus follower. They didn't need permission, they didn't need programs, they probably had little or no funding either. All they needed was persecution to uproot them from their comfort zone in Jerusalem and, and, and an outpouring of God's spirit and their hearts were aflame with the glad tidings of salvation, this terrific news of a savior for sinners as we've just sung about. They loved Christ and they had to tell others. Remember Peter and John in Acts 4 when the officials, sound familiar, the regulations, the event compliance, police van that showed up at our church once and uh, all of these crazy regulations trying to shut churches down. It, it's nothing new for, for the bride of Christ. It's nothing new for preachers of the gospel. And so they said to Peter and John, shut up. And Peter and John said, we cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. You can't tie our tongues. We can't keep it in. And this first great wave of anonymous missionaries wasn't any real great strategy. It was more of a providential scattering that sent out these fugitive evangelists to the ends of the earth. But they had issues. You notice I didn't read the whole verse. Look at, back at verse 19. All was well and good, speaking the word, until we read the final phrase, to know and accept the Jews alone. They had issues still. They hadn't heard yet about Peter's rooftop vision in chapter 10 and Cornelius's a Gentile conversion, so they were still practicing a kind of racist evangelism, if we would dare say, for elite insiders only, restricting their witness to Jews alone. Keep reading, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, underline, key word, also, Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Don't you love it? It took an islander, and an African, a Cy Cyprian from Cyprus. We're gonna see another Cyprian in a minute when they enlist Barnabas to help. It takes an Islander and an African, a Cyrenian from North Africa, Libya region today, to plant the original Antioch, to break through the barrier of Jewish pride. These bold brethren from Cyprus and Cyrene, they dared to go where no man had gone before, as it were, outside the walls of the synagogue. They stopped waiting for sinners to come in and instead they went out. They weren't just saying, oh, come to my church on Sunday, though that's a great idea. They were also saying, can I see you on Monday? <laughs> can we talk on Wednesday? Come with me on Friday as I go to the gym or basketball or do life and tell you about my Savior. They met them on their own turf. They came to seek and save the lost like their Lord. Fishing for men. Keep reading verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Pause for a minute, brothers and sisters. Antiochians, hardened pagans, hopeless idolaters, sinful addicts, turning to the Lord, converted. God's light can shine in the darkest pit. Never despair. He saved you, after all. <laughs> or, or did we forget? Notice also here in verse 21, it's only when the hand of God moves that men are saved. 
Dusty's hand and my hand and all the, our efforts in the world can produce churchgoers. They cannot produce real converts. God's hand, yes, through human instrumentation, through faithful evangelism, but it's the hand of God that does it as we faithfully witness. You can't manufacture it. You can't program it. Remember Spurgeon meeting that drunk guy on the streets? He said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. He said, clearly, because you're not one of God's converts by the way you're behaving. I pray that, brothers and sisters, if I say beloved, I mean it, and that's how I address our church, so I haven't met most of you. Christians, never get over the wonder of God using little you and me to alter someone's eternal destiny. May we never lose the amazement of that. The danger of familiarity is a constant threat for us. I mean, how powerful is a message that when simply spoken by the most ordinary, unimpressive people can overcome all persecution, overthrow Satan's dark and vast domain, humble the proudest human hearts, and cause them to bow to King Jesus just because you spoke up and told someone else about your Savior. I mean, how powerful must be the, the, the Christ who uses the mere sound of weak human voices like yours and mine when we speak this living word, when we proclaim this powerful gospel to see vile rebels brought into glad submission to the king, what a truly awesome, astonishing privilege. As we were flying here on Monday night on our first flight from LAX to Phoenix, strangely, only as we landed, the neighbor across the aisle from me said, I see you're reading a book. Uh, it was a a book about missions and Christianity. And he said, that looks interesting. I'm Roman Catholic. I bet you're Protestant. Can we talk? I'm like, can we talk? <laughs> Nowadays, nobody wants to talk on the plane, right? Uh, and we had a great opportunity to talk about justification. He says, I, we have a favorite theologian. I said, I know that name. When I was in seminary 25 years ago, I heard him debate Michael Horton, the Protestant, at a certain church in Los Angeles. And so it was a great segue. Let's talk about justification. We got interrupted by the guy in front of us who rebuked me because I wasn't wearing my mask properly. We ignored him, smiled, and said, can we get back to justification? <laughs> and pray for him that the Lord would water the seed Amazing privilege every time we get to proclaim this life-saving message. Number two, a flourishing church is planted by evangelism one, but now verse 22 to 24, it is watered by encouragement. Watered by encouragement. Look at verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Do you, do you see their look in their faces back at the mother church, back home at Jerusalem Bible Church. Hmm, a Jew-Gentile church in Antioch? Pagan, superstitious, debauched Antioch up to the north? Way outside the, the holy land boundaries of Israel? With Gentiles being saved? Barnabas, you gotta go check it out. <laughs> Something's fishy here. <laughs> Maybe some were rejoicing and others were alarmed. Keep reading verse 23. Then when he, Barnabas, arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all. I love this. Barnabas never just saw you, he saw straight through you. <laughs> he saw something else in you. In fact, no, someone else in you. The grace of God at work. 
transforming you day by day. It's one of my greatest joys whenever we are back in the States and to, to meet friends, old and new, and to see the grace of God in them. You've hardly met, and you see the grace of God. You see the fruit of the Spirit. You see the work of God's Word. You see the result of a healthy church in their life, and you rejoice with new people. And then perhaps even greater, uh, because we've all had friends who went off the rails and who are no longer carrying on. And uh, I met with my friend who's uh, uh, a couple days ago part of a, a ministry that's quite different than ours theologically. You'd all know about it if I told you. Much more big tent, mainline, evangelical kind of thing, but he loves Christ, and we, we, we joke, we say we can never plan a church together, but every couple of years, and, 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 and periodically, an email or phone call, we can encourage each other, I'm just so glad you're carrying on with Christ, I know guys who have better theology, who went to master's seminary, who are nowhere today, I'm just so glad you're standing, and, and, and here's some books you should read, <laughs> but, uh, and we can talk because we love each other, and, but you haven't given up, you haven't thrown in the towel, you're carrying on, and that was Barnabas when he was with you. <laughs> He saw the grace of God in you. I was with my uh, spiritual father, Pastor Ron, in Katy Bible Church. 36 years he ministered there. Then the Lord called him home uh, through COVID in December. I was with his widow on Friday night where we stayed. And she's that kind of woman. She, wh whoever she's with, she always spurs you on to stay faithful to the end and tells it to you straight. <laughs> when he died, they'd been married, uh, you know, decades and she's a very practical, matter-of-fact woman. It was a huge blow. There's no question about her grief, but she said, I couldn't go, I couldn't talk to him. You know, all the COVID rules. I watched through the window. I saw the vitals dropping. She said, I looked at the nurse and said, I think my husband just went to heaven. So what's next? How do we, how do we proceed? God reigns. He rules. <laughs> We're not living for this life. Why are Christians spending more time trying to keep the saved out of heaven instead of the lost out of hell? I got that from her, by the way. <laughs> Look at Barnabas here in verse 23. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Barnabas, who knows what it means? Son of encouragement. They spell that out back when he's introduced in chapter 4. You couldn't be around Barnabas and stay discouraged for long. Just being around him would cause you to rise up from your despair and take new steps of faith in God and, and, and to rejoice in the Lord and to walk in obedience. Don't you want to be that kind of encouraging person? I know I do. Pray that I would be. Pray that our churches would be filled with these kind of people, right? CEOs, chief encouragement officers. <laughs> Verse 23 concludes... He encouraged them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. I like the ESV here as well. To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He didn't just tell people, it's okay, you're special. What you're going through is normal. You're great. I love what Dusty said earlier. Our final hope is not who we are, it's who Christ is and what the Lord's doing in us. Cling to him, Barnabas said. Stay resolved. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep swimming upstream no matter how ungodly the age. Live with holy resolve. Hold on to your purpose. Be like a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known, as the hymn writer said about holy Daniel in unholy Babylon. Just imagine the resolve it took to be an Antiochian new convert in this debauched pagan city. Friends, we have no idea. As bad as America has gotten, as immoral as uh, much of uh, uh, animistic and, and traditional religion can be in places like Africa, in cities like Johannesburg, the crime, the corruption, Still, we have the vestiges of Judeo-Christian and missionary gospel influence in your country and in ours in South Africa. 
The Greco-Roman world had none of that. It was normal to have multiple concubines and, 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 and brothels everywhere, and yet people were getting saved and living holy lives. Yes, porn is horrible. Yes, Wi-Fi seems uh, oppressively available. But God, but God, Christ is able. He did it then, he can do it now. And they were transformed. They were living new lives. And when your spiritual grip is slipping, you need a Barnabas. And you need to be a Barnabas for others so they won't let go. What the, the work he began in you, he will be faithful to complete. We have to keep reminding one another of that. Encouragement is the oxygen of the soul, it's been said. Otherwise, we will suffocate. Well, keep reading. What made Barnabas so encouraging? Verse 24. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Like with Stephen earlier in the book of Acts, these are not occasional experiences for Barnabas. It's an ongoing characteristic it's what he was full of. It was a lifestyle for him. Full of the spirit, full of faith, marked by a spirit-ruled, spirit-governed, spiritual life. Behind every flourishing church are flourishing saints who are contagiously Christian. Barnabas could water others because he was first watered by a large supply of God's spirit and of faith. Well, keep reading. What happens next when an uh, uh, encouraging church of flourishing Christians, has godly examples like Barnabas, they multiply. Their Christianity becomes contagious as well. Verse 24 goes on to say, and considerable numbers are brought to the Lord. When we grow in depth, God will produce breath sooner or later. The more we mature, the more we should multiply. That's the vision of Ephesians 4. As the church grows, it grows deeper and it grows wider with the quality god provides the quantity in his time in his way i love these passive verbs that dr luke is known for in acts notice it wasn't active it wasn't man doing no that numbers were brought to the lord by who remember acts 2 at pentecost who added to the church daily those who are being saved the lord saving the lord adding through a faithful church and so it is here well, now you have a critical need. Now you need follow-up. Now you have all these new babies running around in, in uh, diapers, as we say in South Africa, nappies uh, that, have, that get dirty often. <laughs> and there's a, a lot of nursing and washing and cleaning and feeding and nurture. And that's going to require faithful teachers. And so we come to number three. After a flourishing church planted by evangelism, watered by encouragement, verse 25 and 26, it grows through teaching. It grows through teaching. Look at, look at the text, verse 25. And Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Further proof of how good Barnabas was, how generous his heart was, how pastorally wise this Cyprian was, and how humble was his heart. Remember the saying, no limit to what God can do through someone who cares not about the credit? Barnabas says, I'm not able to cope. The church needs help. I'm happy for God to use others, teachers more gifted than me. I know Saul, and soon in the story, as if you know the book of Acts, Saul will become Paul, and he will outclips and outshine Barnabas by far. The story begins Barnabas and Saul, soon it becomes Paul and Barnabas. That's deliberate in the text. As Barnabas takes a back seat to the giftedness of Paul. What did John the Baptist, 
Baptists teach us, like a bridesmaid or a groomsman in a wedding, your job is to decrease so that the couple might increase. And, Bar- and John the Baptist says, therefore, I must decrease and Christ must increase, right? Again, my pastor Ron and spiritual mentor down in Katy, his widow was saying to me on Friday, with COVID and everything, I asked her, she, it's hard to get a negative word or a single complaint out of her, but yes, it was hard. The burial was like four people. The memorial service weeks later was still only a handful of people. We never really got to have a normal funeral, but she said, that sermon you preached in Johannesburg on Christmas Eve, right after he died, and you mentioned him numerous times, but just to illustrate the gospel you were preaching and the greatness of Christ and the greatness of Savior, of the Savior, that was the memorial service, thank you. It's exactly what he would have wanted. Anything more about him, he would have been uncomfortable with. I said, wow, praise the Lord. I was just trying to be a faithful pastor on Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas Day, rather. You do Christmas Eve here. We meet on Christmas morning. We're more spiritual in South Africa. (laughs) See, the British are a Dutch tradition, so every Sunday morning we uh, have Christmas church. Uh, it's my birthday as well, so it's a uh, uh, fun party. Aha, Barnabas thinks, I've got a perfect idea, the ideal candidate for such a strategic task. Paul's been off the radar screen back in his hometown of Tarsus for some eight to ten years now, if you do the New Testament chronology. But God has given him an unmistakable calling to the Gentiles. Was he not called on the Damascus Road as the apostle to the Gentiles? And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And now is the time for his debut. The church at Antioch urgently needs this man, a teacher, a theologian of his caliber. Keep reading verse 26. And when he had found him, when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This text implies that phrase there at the beginning of verse 26, some effort to hunt Paul down in the busy streets in the back alleys of Tarsus. Just picture it for a moment. Where is he? Where is he? I need to find him. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. Theology matters. We need a teacher. Not programs. Not big ideas. Not fancy plans. We need sound doctrine. Where is this man? Sheep are hungry for sheep food. (laughs) Which I'm sure brings many of you here to a church like this. You combine the New Testament data, you realize in the chronology of Paul's life, he suffered already much in the cause of Christ. He's a seasoned preacher. He's a battle-tested leader. He's a careful theologian. And now you have this dynamic duo. Imagine Barnabas and Paul. Tender Barnabas, sensitive, empathetic, gracious encourager. Saul, the preacher, with the razor-sharp lawyer's intellect. Together, empowered by the Spirit, they were an unbeatable team. (laughs) And look again, by the way, at verse 26. This is now a a great point to highlight what we've all had to, been forced to learn in this COVID era in the last 18 months. Goats roam alone, sheep are social creatures. Christians love to gather. To be a church is to be an ecclesia who assembles. Praise God, you are here today, something we took for granted. If I told you two years ago that we would all be sitting around as Christians, even pastors and seminary graduates, debating whether Christians should go to church or not, two years ago you would have said, sorry, missionary, Tim, jet lag, shame, as we say in South Africa, sorry for you, uh, you, just, you just need some rest. <laughs> you would have laughed me out of the room, and here we are. The world told us the church is non-essential, and we believed it. God help us. He forgives. We've repented, haven't we? And here we are. And the Lord has gathered us in his name. 
And we need to be taught. We need to fellowship. They are gathering together there for a whole year to be taught there in verse 26. It's not an attitude of what's the minimum we can do so that Caesar is happy. No, what's the maximum we can do so that Jesus is happy? And Christ, who's Lord and King. Remember Martin Lloyd-Jones said, as he preached through the book of Acts, especially chapter 2 at Pentecost, why are we debating over whether we should meet a second or third time on Sunday or how many times midweek or if we should go into homes or not. The attitude of the early Christians when you're filled with the Spirit is how often can we meet? Let's fight about how often, not how little and how rarely. And notice the indispensable role of teaching and how God grows his church. Teaching is not one of the many ministries. Unfortunately, purpose-driven church, Rick Warren, 1990s, brought a curse to the global church by saying that teaching was just one of five major things, so do it okay, which eventually leads to doing it badly, by the way, and then do, you know, prayer and missions and fellowship and relationships and music and whatever. And teaching is just one of the things a church should do. Wrong! How will you know how to do missions and prayer and teach and, uh, you know, music and, and, and relationships and small groups and all those other things if you're not taught? Teaching's not one of the fingers, it's the hand. It's through sound doctrine, through the exposition of scripture, verse by verse, through understanding theology and biblical truth that we know how to do every other ministry in the church. We say this in our church's declaration of faith. We built it in 12 years ago in our doctrinal statement. Expository teaching is a fountain out of which all ministry flows. Can't have strong believers without strong doctrine. Our behavior follows our belief. Weak beliefs, weak behavior. Strong beliefs, holy behavior. Right doctrine, right living. We're being tested today, aren't we? What are our ethics? What, are, what about medical ethics? How do Christians deal with questions of the vaccine, and vaccine passports, and regulations, and church and state, and uh, wokeness, and social justice, and, and, and uh, all kinds of issues, and racial harmony? How will we know what to believe and how to behave if we are not taught? And if we think one hour on a Sunday morning is going to do it, you've got another thing coming. We need to have multiple opportunities every week to be saturated with scripture, to sit under the word. How will we know how to be citizens? How will we know the difference between Christian nationalism and godly patriotism? How will we know the difference between social justice and legitimate biblical justice? And so on and so forth. Notice the third time now Luke has emphasized numbers. Verse 21 Large number, verse 24, considerable numbers. Verse 26, considerable numbers. How concerned should we be about numbers? You're a young church. I want to leave you with, or encourage you with this. Oops, if I say leave you, it'll sound like I'm ending. I'm not ending. <laughs> not quite. What happens when the church planter and the pastor, it's not if, it's when, someone's going to complain we should see quicker growth. We should be seeing more new converts. Two principles for you from this text and from throughout the book of Acts and from Scripture. On the one hand, beware of over-concern about numbers. The New Testament is clear. Witnessing is our job. Converting is God's job. Our job is to proclaim. God's job is to bring results. As much as we may long for them, we must pray for them and labor for them. Only God can bring the results. Let the Lord build the house. Let the Lord watch over the city. We labor in vain. Doesn't mean we don't labor. But we don't do it with anxious toil. We believe in 
sovereign sweat. <laughs> God-centered efforts. Faithful ministry can result in differing harvests. Please don't forget this. Jerusalem, Samaria, Antioch saw great numbers come to Christ. But Peter and John got thrown in jail. Stephen got killed. And Noah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel tell them they were unfaithful because they didn't have big results. And yet God called them to persevere and to stand firm for the truth. So beware of an overconcern about numbers, but also beware of an underconcern about numbers. In our sort of expository, reformed, sound doctrine circles, there is in every age a hyper-Calvinist in us all that wants to blame God for our laziness and our failure to evangelize and our uh, indifference about personal witnessing to the lost and a burden for souls. As Spurgeon once said, men are passing into eternity so quickly that we must have them saved at once. From all our congregations, a bitter cry should go up to God. Unless conversions are continually seen, we are bound to look for a harvest and to mourn if it does not appear in due time. And if you question whether Spurgeon was a biblical Calvinist, we can talk afterwards and your pastor will give you the same answer. <laughs> or just look up a real study of Spurgeon for about five minutes. Staunchly God-centered. And yet, man is fully responsible. He's, Spurgeon scoffs at those who, instead of boasting in their large church and great numbers, fall in the opposite ditch, boasting in their small church and tiny numbers. We find fancy words. Overseas, the favorite word is a goodly, a goodly number. Sometimes that's sincere. Sometimes it's laziness justified. Badge of honor. God's true remnant, the few and faithful. Oh, that church is growing. They must be heretics. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. We need to beware of both ditches, over-concern or under-concern about numbers. Rather stay on the biblical path of faithful obedience, regular witnessing, personal evangelism, holding ourselves and one another accountable for, uh, for a concern for souls, for praying and weeping over souls, cherishing the gospel, meditating on the cross until it melts our hearts and opens our mouths to find every way possible to get the gospel out to more lost sinners and rescue those who are perishing. That's our attitude. If men go to hell, let it be over my exhausted body and my arms of love, having pled and prayed and preached and wept and done all I could to warn them. Verse 26 concludes, and they were called Christians in Antioch. Such faithful teaching, such sound doctrine, such uh, diligent witnessing, the community is impacted. Heads are turned, jaws are dropped, people see the difference. A pagan city has no category for this kind of radical religion. Different from all the Jews in town, not just devoted to the latest clever rabbi, the latest religious uh, uh, ritual, not just preoccupied with a place or with programs. No, there's this person who dominates their conversation, a person who is their first love. They say he rose from the dead way back over in Jerusalem, and he is everything to them. They say in China, a true believer sometimes gets called a Yesu Yan, a Jesus man. <laughs> Could that be said of you and me? You're a Yesu Yan. You're a, you're a Jesus man, a Jesus woman, a Christ follower, a Christ adherent. It was probably a ridicule from their neighbors, those of the Christ party who habitually name his name. They were first called Christians at 
Antioch. You notice how repeatedly Christ-centered this text has been? Back in verse 20, they were preaching the Lord Jesus, not their denomination, not their church, as much as those have had a role historically. And there's a time to talk about those things and theological labels, uh, as I've just been using even earlier in this sermon. But first and foremost, our message is not churchianity. It's not even Christianity. It's Christ. <laughs> we proclaim him, Scripture says. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. And here it is, verse 20. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, people turned to the Lord. Verse 23, it says... Paul, Barnabas said, remain true to the Lord. <laughs> they love the church because they love the head. <laughs> King Jesus. And so it is here. Again, in verse 26, they're called Christians. This ought to be our first identity, right? That's what binds us together. Whether you're in a largely white part of the world where there is no condemnation and there is uh, I, there should be not a single snide remark from visiting missionaries or guys from big cities elsewhere about diversity and woe is you because you don't have all the colors. I reject all of that wokeness, if I can just be very frank with you publicly. But insofar as you are loving Christ and loving your community and winning the lost, you want to reflect that community where God has put you. We're blessed. We are in a very diverse part of the world, increasingly so. Many of the white and western folk are fleeing. We wish they'd stay. We beg them to be salt and light here as the country seems to go down the tubes, but we can't condemn them for going. If you don't have South Africans in your church, you probably will soon. And they're wonderful, precious people and our dear friends for some of them the last you know, 15, 20 plus years. But what unites us fundamentally is not that we are Texan or that we are Southern or that we are American or that we are South African or that we are uh, African or that we are hyphenated, whatever. It is that we are Christ's. And yes, you may be an African Christian, an American Christian, an Asian Christian, but fundamentally it's that we are Christ's. And in him we find one another. And the wall is torn down, right? And there's true harmony, true unity, and godly biblical diversity that flows out of that supernaturally, not just naturally. Okay, fourth and finally, a flourishing church planted by evangelism, watered by encouragement, grows through teaching. Number four, blossoms in generosity. What good is church growth? What point is it to have uh, growing numbers if there's not a growth in maturity? Why do you want breadth if there isn't depth? It will not last. It does not honor Christ. That's the church of wood, hay, and stubble. That's not the church of gold, silver, and precious stones that will last if we have quantity without quality. Look what happens here in these final verses. As the gospel through a healthy church and through godly leaders and sound teaching produces generosity and unselfishness and outward focus and non-materialistic Christians. Verse 27. Now at this time some prophets came down. Um, I told you the third point, didn't I? Blossoms in generosity. That's the fourth, the fourth point rather. The text says at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. That's right, prophets. Why not? We learn in Ephesians 2 and 4, the early church is built upon the foundation on the apostles and prophets. This is a foundational spiritual gift in the early church. It was still needed before the canon of Scripture was completed. And these words of inspired, recorded prophecy were passed on to us. Keep reading, verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be a, certainly a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. It's a clear message from the Holy Spirit to the church at Antioch. 
Somehow the, the, the believers there knew that their brothers and sisters in the faith over in Jerusalem would be affected and hit hard by this famine. About A.D. 47. Keep reading verse 29. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. They must have figured, hold on. Hey, we've received so much from our mother church in Jerusalem. Where would we be without those evangelists and church planters and Christians and, and teachers and prophets, Barnabas and Agabus that they've sent to us? We owe our eternal life to the Jews. They've brought us God's word and God's son and God's gospel. As Paul puts it over in Romans 15, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them, the saints in Jerusalem, in material things. Galatians chapter six talks about that same principle. So here is a church resolved, determined to obey Christ in very practical, material ways. It says literally there in verse 29, they sent a diakonia, a contribution, a service, a support, an aid. Well, how much? It says proportionately to their means. Someone said, you want revival in your church? Take up a missionary offering. <laughs> it uproots us from our earthly mindedness and our temporal uh, focus and reminds us of eternity and storing up treasures in heaven and what's going to matter a billion years from now, whether I had that newer, bigger, better, shinier, whatever. Verse 30. And this they did, sending it to, in a charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. What a shock that day in Jerusalem when this gift arrived from filthy, defiled Gentile hands. The tables have turned. I mean, from the beginning of this chapter, Acts 11, Jerusalem church is sneering at Peter for eating with Gentile Christians. Now, through a famine, is that not often what? Suffering, pandemics, you name it, uh, circumstances, that God humbles here, this Jerusalem church, so low that they need support from Gentile hands. New converts in a dirty city like Antioch, loving their spiritual parents, the mother church, in tangible, demonstrable ways. Here's this mostly Gentile church feeding Jewish believers. It's kind of reminiscent of how Jewish Peter shared food at the table laid by Gentile Cornelius in chapter 10, all because of the reconciling, unifying power of Christ and his mighty gospel. I was talking on Friday night with the widow of my spiritual mentor, down in Katie, Pastor Ron's widow and really a spiritual mother to me in many ways, uh, Aunt Margaret, Auntie Margaret, as we would say in South Africa. And she said, you know, I don't know if you ever realized, but that one season in the life of our church when we lost a chunk of people, it's because Pastor Ron cared about the Spanish community in the area. And they, everyone, there was people, well, it's usually just one angry person in the church who said, you haven't turned them in. Pastor Ron said, I reported and let the local immigration know. They said, thank you. Pray for them. Feed them the word. Just don't hide them. That's all we ask of you. Keep ministering to them. What more is he supposed to do? He's a pastor. He's not an immigration officer. I know this is a controversial subject. But the point is, is our heart. Whatever our application is, and that's why you have your pastor and your elders, is our heart one that is outward and open, not inward and closed. For the gospel truly caring, serving church. Not afraid to get stuck in, roll up your sleeves, get their hands dirty, meet the needs of others. 
A church not just of words, but of deeds like Christ himself through his ministry. No limit to what God will do through a generous church. Proverbs says, he who waters others will himself be watered. Psalms talks about those who give freely, who scatter their gifts. Winston Churchill even said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. We all know people like that, don't we? Well, as I close, truly, you think about your church. I prepare to get on a plane tomorrow and enlist your prayers for our church back at Antioch in Johannesburg. The opportunities and the threats that you face, the same, or we too, as we face similar and different opportunities and threats. What will make the difference? What will make North Lake healthy and flourishing and thriving while other churches languish? Often it comes down to these four things. Take away any one of them and sooner or later a church is doomed. Stay faithful to all four of them and you have a vibrant, flourishing church because they're planted by evangelism. They're, they're watered by encouragement. They, they grow through teaching and they blossom in generosity. That is a church that will leave an indelible imprint for King Jesus on its community, on its city and will leave a mark that Satan and hell itself cannot erase. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without models and patterns. We have a, a world, particularly in places, especially America, but even in Africa as well, where there is so much Christian influence, there are so many churches, and there's so many books and opinions about what the church ought to be that we often fail to turn to the original church growth manual to see what it looks like when the Holy Spirit rules and reigns, when your word advances, and when Jesus is Lord, and your gospel goes forth unstoppably. Lord, may we, not in our own strength, but by your grace, filled with your spirit, continue to our dying breath as believers and as churches to strive more for this model. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed in evangelizing, encouraging, teaching, and generosity. Wash us, cleanse us, revive, renew, strengthen, sanctify, grow us in these four areas. For your glory, the good of your church, and through us, salt and light that influences nations and will please our Savior when he returns. In his great name we pray. Amen.